This show is brought to you by Nice Mug. Nice Mug is the only mug made entirely out of ice. For more information, go to nicemug.com and enter the coupon code SAUNA for 10% off your entire purchase. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting on the bench with Omar Ansari, founder of Surly Brewing. You can listen uh, to our Sound of Talk interview uh, th- through Sound of Times, uh, if you haven't already. It's, uh, it's a great visit. And today on the bench, I have the pleasure of visiting with another enterprising icon in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, we welcome John Munger, Executive Director of the Lopet Foundation. John and Omar have a few similarities. Uh, They both know each other from way back. Surly was an early sponsor of the Lopet Foundation, and that relationship is still strong today. Their beginnings, John with the Lopet and Omar with Surly Brewing, each started as a kernel seed of an idea, and each has grown into something long-lasting and remarkable. Both have swam upstream against established rules and structure, both political and policy, with fierce dedication to their clear visions and missions. And as you'll hear in this episode, John notes that, quote, real change in the world is stuff that lasts, end quote. In the case of Surly Brewing, we have Surlyville, a substantial, cool, and beautiful brewery destination complex. And in the case of the Lopet Foundation, we have the Trailhead, a substantially cool and beautiful recreation destination complex. So each of these beautiful buildings and the smiles created within are Instagram-worthy. Both buildings appear in tourist brochures and social media feeds for people visiting the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And yet neither of these Twin City iconic structures and organizations uh, would exist uh, without either Omar or John. So what is the Lopet Foundation? It was founded in 2002. Uh, the Lapid Foundation is a nonprofit which is dedicated towards doing something good for the community. The foundation undertakes a variety of things, including trails and facility management, large scale public events, youth and adult recreational programming, and competitive training clubs. At the center of all these tentacles is their mission, which is to create a shared passion for year round outdoor adventure in the Minneapolis area, with a focus on underserved youth and families. The Lopet Foundation offers year-round programs for kids, adults, and everyone in between, from the Lopet Run Club to their in-school mini Lopet program. The foundation works to get folks from all walks of life outside and active, no matter what the weather. A lot of skiing going on with the Lopet Foundation. Um, There's trails uh, at Theodoreth Park go on and are really well-groomed. There's mountain biking within these trails. Uh, And, you know, in in the summer season, golf. The the Theodoreth Golf Course has been around for about a century and uh, is is very active. So uh, it's a beautiful area, uh, Theodoreth Park, old-growth trees, um, and in, when you come around a corner, you can see a gorgeous view of the downtown Minneapolis skyline. It's emblematic of the beauty of the city of Minneapolis. It reminds me of a European city where you have nature uh, and urban kind of intertwined in public use uh, and very well maintained. 
so the luminary lopet um, it was it, it this is a, a key core of the lopet foundation it happens at lake of the isles in minneapolis minnesota and has grown tremendously as you will hear in the interview the first luminary had about 150 people in 2006 in this past luminary we had over 10,000 people in attendance uh, what it is is uh, Saturday night, uh, a cold night usually, in uh, 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 the heart of winter. Thousands of people gather, and there's uh, luminary um, ice carvings and, and sculptures and walkways and trails and bands and music and outdoor entertainment. It's just a wonderful opportunity for the community to gather, celebrate winter, celebrate life in Minneapolis, all on the frozen lake of the Isles um, in the heart of Minneapolis, surrounded by million-dollar stucco homes, and just everything's a postcard, uh, and it, uh, we wave the flag <clears throat> for winter in an, an urban environment uh, uh, real high, and it's a, it's a gorgeous event. Um, so the Trailhead Project, including building and surround trail improvements, is about a $10 million uh, project in total. The building is completed and has quickly become a signature statement piece for Minneapolis. The 612 Sauna Society's wood-fired mobile sauna has been parked in the shadows of the trailhead all winter long and now into spring. This, uh, this sauna residency has complemented the offerings of the trailhead. Guests have been able to enjoy sauna after ski surrounding these old-growth trees and well-groomed trails in, uh, quote, this is so awesome, it's got to be against some kind of rule, end quote, kind of way. So some quotes from John Munger come to mind. Uh, Real change in the world is stuff that lasts. It doesn't always have to be fun in order to be meaningful. All volunteers do more work than Hercules. They do amazing work. And, uh, you know, John says, I enjoy sauna. It has been something that is culturally part of everything we do. If you are an outdoor person, if you are a skier, if you are Scandinavian roots, sauna is a part of all of that. So, yeah, I also enjoyed uh, a quote from John where he says, uh, you know, when he reflects upon his work, he says, quote, when I do my work well, it is because I say yes. And um, you'll hear a little bit more about that. Um, so... Uh, we talk about liability. Here's a really funny line in there about liability and pulling apart what does liability mean, how it's a quick way to snuff out um, enterprise, enterprise, exciting things. And when you peel away uh, the, the, the claim of liability, oftentimes it's hollow and there's nothing there. We'll hear about John's story um, as it relates to Jesse Diggins, who has been a contributor to help make the World Cup a reality for Minneapolis. Uh, 2001 was the last World Cup in the U.S., and 2020 it will be under the wing of the Lopet Foundation in Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. <clears throat> so without further ado, uh, please enjoy my interview with John Munger from the Lopet Foundation. Uh, it's it's March and this is a really um, interesting day I think John because uh, I'm with John Munger founder of the Lopet Foundation and we're sitting at the right in front of the trailhead in the 612 sauna and uh, and John I, I got to tell you a quick story is, is this is almost like uh, made for mo the movies because I didn't bring my skis today 
I told you I was going to ski. It's yeah. March 18. Yeah. And we've had a great winter in terms of snow, right? Yeah. So I decided, okay, no skis. It's got to be too late. The sun is too high and all that. So I just went for a walk before our sauna together. And I got to tell you this. So I'm, I'm starting my walk and I see this couple coming off, you know, the ski hill. So I said, hey, how was it? How was it? They were just glowing. They were like, it's unbelievable. The conditions are fantastic. And I'm so pissed that I didn't bring my skis to ski before our, our, our sauna today. But there's a compliment. Unintended. You, you, you definitely made a mistake in not, not bringing your skis today. It, uh, I'm actually kicking myself because, I, it, as it turned out, I only had a little free time today and I squandered it early this morning when the skiing would have been perfect. So, yeah. either going to go tonight or tomorrow morning, it's going to be good. <clears throat> so, if you were to take the last three weeks, 21 days, how many have you skied? Uh, I bet I've skied 20 of those 21 days. Okay, and and out of the 20, how many have you skied right from your office, in so many words, right from your office here at the trailhead? Uh, I either ski right from the office at the trailhead, or I ski right from my house where I can ski into into the office. Oh, that's so, tremendous. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a slick arrangement for me. So, in the last... 21 work days <clears throat> how many did you ski to work versus come to work from some in some other way you know i usually bicycle to work um uh, but my bike with with studded tires which you would need these days mm -hmm. uh, has a flat tire so i was forced to ski to work um, probably you know i'd say 16 of those days wow because the snow has been so good absolutely it's yeah been a, a great february and the snow the snow was great but it was also somewhat cruel um if i could be so bold can you wind the clock back to this year's loppet and give us a little behind the scene curtain of what it was like managing uh the trails the race with the unpredictable weather that we had this this time around yeah it was definitely interesting uh it we had zero, basically zero snow through November, December, and January. Um, we had great skiing uh, because of our, our artificial snow loop, but uh, we did finally get, I think it was six inches of snow or so the Sunday before the event. And, you know, now this is on bare ground. Uh, yeah. And six inches on a couple inches of ice would be no problem, but six inches on bare ground, we had to do tons of shoveling during the week to get the trails ready. And then uh, Saturday we did manage to do the point-to-point -point classic race, uh, albeit with a few maybe dinged up skis. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then Saturday it got to mm, 33 or so, 34 degrees, which shouldn't be too bad usually. So we were planning to do the full course uh, marathon course skate race um, but what actually ended up happening was uh, we did a lot of inspecting see what things were like and I ended up skiing back from the luminary lope at that evening uh, to my house mm -hmm. and uh, encountered the groomers along the way and it was at that point at about 10 at night the best conditions of the entire year actually because it had firmed up and yeah. that warmer temperatures that really helped I went to bed I uh, wrote up my trail report to all the athletes first. I went to bed and then I got up at 3.30 in the morning and went out to look at the course again. And I was greeted to the sound of dripping. And uh, it, instead of going down overnight, it went up to about 38 and hovered there. And 
So when I went out, it was uh, what had been really nice a few hours before was pretty grim. And so we ended up having to make a call at four in the morning to pull the plug on the full marathon course and ski on our loops here at Worth Park. So that was, it was a, it was an interesting evening. Um, the one other thing I'll say on that is that 33 degrees turns out to be the perfect temperature for the luminary lopet. And so yes. we had the best luminary lopet ever. So Okay, so for those listening, a lot of people listen to Sound of Talk, you know, from Europe and all over the, all over beyond Minnesota. Um, when you say uh, the ski race had to be changed at that time at four in the morning, how many racers did that decision affect? Uh, there were probably 1,200, 1,500 people doing um, the point-to-point courses from uh, Bademakaska to uh, Worth Park. So okay. some of them doing a marathon, some of them doing half marathon, some of them doing a marathon on fat bikes, right. some of them with dogs, ski-joring. So about 1,500 people were affected by yep. your decision or the group's decision. Yep, group's decision. Okay. Yep. Yep. And then... The Luminary Lopet, which we'll talk about here in a moment. How many people enjoyed the best weather for the Luminary Lopet in many years? Uh, you know, we never know exactly how many people are out there, but there were well over 10,000 people out there uh, enjoying that event that night, for sure. Yeah. Do you think that uh, the Lopet is known around the country as an organization, as a, as a city, um, a Minneapolis uh, event? Uh, would you say like are you in touch with many uh, city people that do what you do in other cities and would you say that the Lopet Foundation is known around around our, our country yeah, well it's funny Glenn I mean uh, people ask uh, as we go along and things they say well you you know have you looked at comparables across the country and we look around and <laughs> there aren't a lot of come you know organizations that do exactly what we do we're pretty unique um, but increasingly, especially with this trailhead building we're sitting right outside of right now, um, people are calling us and saying, hey, mm. you know, we'd love to emulate what's happening in yeah. Minneapolis, and yeah. that, that's fun. And then with the World Cup that we have coming, um, I think, you know, people are, are excited about what's happening in Minneapolis. Can we wind the clock back? I've known you, John, what, 15 15 years, maybe? Something like that. Well, it's probably. I'm guessing it's probably 13 or so. That was when we started the Luminary Lopet, and I have a feeling that was right. Although, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it has been 15, because uh-huh. it was for the, probably the first time that we did the event where we finished in Uptown. Uh, you, That's right. You started talking about, you know, doing a song at the end of the race. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've been around for a lot of this growth of the Lopet Foundation, and but I, I'd like to go back even further if you if if you're cool with it let's talk about yourself and in your your heritage uh can you can you go back maybe your grandfather can we go back oh, that far sure i mean um so my grandfather is was willard munger who is a well-known person in duluth minnesota he was a state representative for 42 years i believe um and he was a big environmentalist um he um you know, was the guy who, you know, got the uh, DDT banned in Minnesota for the first time when people thought he was a crazy environmental lunatic and um, ended up getting um, uh, the, the first rail trail built in the 80s, and that's the Willard Munger Trail now. And so my middle name is Willard, um, and he was always my hero growing up. Fantastic. Yeah. Obviously, some some elements of leadership and, and nature, uh, you know, being a naturalist, th- those, I guess, uh, knowing you, 
are two areas of, of the legacy of how uh, it rubbed off on you, what your, your grandfather's principles and, 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 and that. Um, what did your father do? Yeah, my, my father probably had equally as big of an influence on, on me as, as my grandfather, if not bigger. I mean, uh, he ran the Multiple Sclerosis Society growing up, and uh, I like to tell the story of, of, uh, of my dad. So he, his job was primarily a fundraiser. That's what the MS Society does, right? Uh, but he didn't like asking people for money, so he tried to think of ways of raising money without asking people for money. And uh, he had grown up in Duluth, and he came up with this idea of having people bicycle to Duluth as a fundraiser for MS. And this mm. is before any of the big rides, right? And so he thought of the idea, and he decided he wanted to see if ordinary people could do this. And so uh, him and I, I was like 10 or 11 years old. I, we climbed on uh, uh, our bikes, um, which were not at all prepared for this, and bicycled to Duluth to see whether ordinary people from, could do it. From Minneapolis? From Minneapolis, yes. And, and, <clears throat> and so that was an outreach. That was a way to reach people in the Twin Cities. Yeah, well, I think, re you know, what he wanted to do was, and what ended up happening was creating the MS-150. We like to say, you know, the, the two of us riding was the first MS-150. Fantastic. Right? What year would that have been? Uh, either 79 or 80. Yeah. Um, uh, I cried, you know, pretty much the whole third day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he deemed it a success anyway. Uh -huh. What was, what was, uh, what were you doing then? What was your, uh, were you still in school, graduating? Well, well, like I said, I was 10 or 11 years old. Oh, you were that young. Okay. Which I is why I, I cried, you know, Crack. cried. Got all, it. You know. So, so, yeah, I mean, I, as we were, the first day was okay. We, I think, biked to Forest Lake, and the second mm -hmm. day we biked to Hinkley, and that was all right. And then the third day, you were on Highway 23. This is before the Munger Trail. And yeah. Things get a little hilly there. Yeah. And so every hill we would go over, my dad would be like, well, this is the last hill, John, and then it's five-mile hill down into Duluth, you know. Oh, and we would crest the hill, and there would just be another hill going up, right? And so I spent a lot of time crying, and, and uh, we eventually did make it to five-mile hill. And, and uh, So this yeah. is an interesting thing about parenthood, if nothing else, is... Uh, so as it relates to sauna, like both Grant and Nate, you remember Grant, you met Grant at Loring Pasta Bar that one time when we ran into you. He oh, was sure. A, yeah. So these kids, these two boys of ours grew up with sauna. They were taking saunas before they could walk. And now sauna is ho-hum for them. But there's biking for you. Like biking is not ho-hum for you. You somehow, although you were forced into it, you, uh, you bike to work and you bike like crazy. So it obviously stuck after that that experience at age 10 you kind of got into it i sense well i think yeah i mean i attribute that to you know being willing to push people into adventures they might be uncomfortable with uh you know it's it's kind of the whole endurance uh, mm -hmm. stuff i'm comfortable with biking and skiing and whatever and and uh, the other Pushing thing I, I like to say is you know people talk about making everything fun and i'm always like well doesn't have to always be fun in order to be meaningful. Oh, um, I like that. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean that 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 was that certainly that third day of biking was not fun, but it was probably one of the more meaningful experiences of my life. So, fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you went to school in Minneapolis. College? Uh, I went to college in New York at Cornell University. Where I met and I went wife. to Ithaca. Oh, cool! Yeah, uh -huh. right yeah. across the right across yeah. the, the the way there. The, the land of above average uh, SAT scores, and yours <laughs> was the land of excellent SAT scores at the time. Uh, studied law. 
I studied law at the University of Minnesota. Yeah. And then tell us about your career right after after law school. Uh, so I practiced law for a number of years um, as a litigator, did a lot of public sector work, um, and eventually found myself um, trying to make the ski trails better at Worth Park and then found mm-hmm. myself organizing a ski race. and On the side. On the side, yes. And, and uh, fortunately, my wife had a very good job and we had little kids and... And so after a couple of years of doing kind of both jobs, I had a little discussion with my wife and said, you know, maybe it'd be better if I only did one job instead of two. And, mm. and uh, we chose this route and uh, I've been at Lopit stuff ever since. If we were to wind the clock back to the decision making of that, uh, uh, that family decision, um, how hard was it? I mean, you were obviously making some pretty decent coin. You had a lot of, you know, time and education and money invested in in your main career um can you can you you know for those listening maybe at their own crossroads of their career you know deciding the practical choice or the more passion choice uh, you obviously chose the passion side didn't you yeah yeah how, how would you advise other people unpack or um make that decision of themselves at a at a career crossroads like you were well, a couple things to, you know, uh, observe there. One, one is, you know, I think probably something had to give. I mean, my wife's a physician. I was an attorney. We had, you know, one young kid and another one coming. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty, you can do it, but it's pretty mm-hmm. hard to have two really loaded professionals in one household and try and, you know, have a meaningful yes. life for your kids. So. You know, I, I feel like since then I've worked as harder, probably harder actually than I would have had I stayed in law. But I've, particularly back then when we were little, uh, had more flexibility, um, and so so that that that's been a really good choice. I, on the other hand, I'll say there are times when I kind of wish I was. You know, I kind of think of myself as still an attorney, but I'm representing the interests of the outdoor enthusiast world. Mm. Um, but. Uh, I wish I was representing someone else sometimes because if things don't go well, there's no disconnect, right? (laughs) It's all me. Yeah, I get it. There's a lot of responsibility with that. Well, responsibility either way, but it's it's more the personal nature. It's like you feel like you're personally at fault or personally attacked Mm -hmm. when things don't go well in the world I live in now. That's a great transition to the next question. I mean, I've known you this, this long, and I don't sense... Um, I, I, I notice that you're very inclusive. Like there are many people involved in the success of the Lapa Foundation, and you've always done such a, uh, in my, from my view, uh, such a great job of inclusion, of getting people invested in their own way. Uh, and I know you're a humble guy, and that's why I wanted to get you on the sauna bench because you can't squirm out of this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you? Um, can you give us the secret sauce, the recipe to? Uh, you jump off and you decide to do this this gig full time about you know nature and the, and the Twin Cities and what it meant to you in the beginning. Sure, there was skiing involved. Maybe there was bicycling involved. There was coordinating with the park board involved. Um, and you were a lone soldier in that. Oh, I was never a lone soldier. I mean, I I always had you know friends and other other uh, co-conspirators, so to speak. Now draw them in during a run or during lunchtime or whatever, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know co-conspire so to speak. But uh, no, it was never 
John Munger. I was just kind of channeling everyone yeah. else. But, you know, you asked about the secret sauce, and I'd say, you know, really it's the same secret sauce that I think gets just about everything done in the world is, is perseverance, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like I'd, I'd have done tons of things wrong and <laughs> lost my cool all the time, and, you know, but sticking with it is what's got us to a more successful point. Can you uh, reach out, like, by, by name? Like, uh, what's an ex- who is an example? Can you list two or three uh, people by name who, are, who have been co- co-conspirators in your effort to, to this monumental work that you've done here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's easy. So Piat Bednarski, um, you know, he, I met Piotr at, at uh, Cornell University, and he was, he was the captain of the ski team when I got there and went, came back to coach us, and he's, you know, been uh, a really high, high-end coach in the area for years and now is part of the Lopet Foundation as our head coach. Mm. Um, he's always been a co-conspirator. Craig Rudd, who um, just a, a real good friend of mine who's very interested in the trails and the events and is you know, countless hours when you need Craig, he's out there shoveling or doing whatever it takes, right? And then, yep. and then the other person I'd point to is, I mean, there's a ton of them, but you know, Margaret Adelsman, um, who's, uh, who's, her husband runs Skinny Ski, well, actually, the family runs SkinnySki.com, which is a big skiing website. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret did everything that was necessary from finances to database mm. to coaching to, you know, program development and and uh, was was one of those people who was there for for everything. And, um, but there's 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 li- literally hundreds of people yes. like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's the spirit uh, that I wanted to pull out. That was one of the intents of this interview, John, is just to to see the growth of Lava Foundation in the sense of this isn't John Munger or some you know cockamamie plan of a guy who decided to stop being a lawyer and become a, a naturalist or a development of of skiing in Minneapolis. I mean, there is a lot of, the, the, it's a foundation, right? So is the organization of Lopet, it's not a corporation, right? It's it's a nonprofit organization. Yeah. yeah so the 501c3. Um, and, you know, I don't know if embedded in there is, you know, how do you keep all these people involved, right? That's right. Um, it's embedded in there. Yes. Um, you know, I think people, uh, having it be a nonprofit is really critical to that. Um, hey, John, is, is there any water out yeah. there? Um, um, you know, but, um, but that, that, so that being a nonprofit has been a big point. This isn't about enriching John Munger. It's about doing something good for the community. Yes. And I would say, you know, one, you know, kind of going along with perseverance. I mean, I think one of the things that I've been able to do halfway well is embody what the whole community, uh, our whole kind of ski community and outdoors community wants. Yeah. And when people see that you're trying to do something that they believe in, people want an outlet to, to help. I mean, yeah. and, and, and that, and I've always considered it to be, and this has been, I think, an important point for me is I'm not, they're not doing me a favor. Um, I'm doing them a favor just as much as they're mm-hmm. doing the organization, of, you know, by, by asking them to help mm-hmm. um, because people want to be involved and, yeah. and you're giving them that opportunity. <clears throat> would you say uh, maybe the this I would call them splinters. I mean, back to the origins of the Lopet Foundation. Uh, you know, uh, the luminary was an early uh, iteration, right? Yeah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Are you cool? Do you want to cool down? Or are you? I think right? we should cool down. In yeah. The area. Yeah. Can we keep? Well, I'll, I'll press pause and we'll, we'll pick up. 
So the um, the luminary, the luminary. Uh, how did the idea of that come about? And that was early on into the whole program, wasn't it? That was, I believe, year four. Um, yeah, year, either year four or five. Um, yeah. So there was a guy named Brian Granuski. Well, no, Rick Buddy, who was a dear friend and, and our registration guy, a very engineering person. Rick pointed out that we were trying to grow our events and that the biggest event outside of the Berkebeiner uh, what the biggest ski event was the book across the bay, mm. which was a luminary lit event across um, Lake Superior from uh, well, I can't remember from Ashland to Bayfield. Um, so we kind of th talked about that, and then a guy named Brian Granuski materialized, and Brian was very interested in luminaries, and uh, Brian was going to make the luminaries for us, but. Brian had a little kid, and it didn't turn out he had time to do it. So with about two weeks to go before the event, um, our volunteer coordinator talked to her husband, Hal. And Hal is a very engineering-type uh, person as well. And Hal called one day, and he said, John, uh, don't worry about these luminaries. I I'm, I'm going to handle it. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm going to make your luminaries. Don't worry about it. Don't need to talk to me again. Like, I own this. Yep, yep. Right. Good. Yeah, so so Hal, uh, you know, says he's got it. And, and uh, it was funny. I mean, a week or so later, one of the things that we needed was a pump to get the water out of the lake. And the park board folks called and said, geez, you know, we've got a pump you can use. And Hal had been so adamant that I shouldn't call him that I called Peggy, his wife, and said, you know, hey, you know, I've got this pump, Peggy, but Hal told me not to call him. And she says, no, no, call Hal. And so I called him and got him the pump. But, but Hal did have the luminaries under control. And, uh, you know, that year I think we had a, maybe 150 people um, involved in the luminary a little bit. Attendees atten or? Uh, people in attendance, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, who paid. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. And, uh, you know, we gave them all hot cocoa and it was good. But, you know, Hal, Hal was not happy because it was cold. And he's, I'm going to do this again. And, and you know, Hal came to me uh, later on that year, and he said, uh, Munger, we've got this new idea. We're going to do uh, so something called Icecropolis. And, and I had no idea what he was talking about, crazy ideas. And, so, you know, he said he needed some sauna tubes, which, uh, not sauna like this, right. but uh, uh, a, a, a tube that you pour concrete in. Um, so I got him some of those uh, from a, 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 spot, a different sponsor, and uh, he created these the tubes of ice up to 12 feet tall and he was joined in this by this guy uh, AD or Dave Bryan who was another brilliant uh, architect um, and uh, they also put together an ice pyramid and uh, various other features and that year we had 350 people and they weren't happy with you know things but uh, it was good and uh, uh, not to put you on the spot, <clears throat> what year are we talking then? I think, I year think, one? I think we're in 07 or 08 yeah. was the first okay. one. Okay, that yeah, um, that's, you know, in a way, it seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. in other ways, probably a lifetime ago. Yes, but. Uh, yes it does. They're both, they're both there. Um, um, but anyway, it kept redoubling, basically, or a little bit more every year in, until we realized, I think it was when we hit 800, that um, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, because it's one thing to, you know, to put on an event for 150, 200 people, whatever, but to serve 800 people hot cocoa 
uh, is a, a whole different, on the middle of a frozen lake, is a little different experience. Yeah, you, so, need, you need a sponsor for something like that. Well, we need a, we need a sponsor, uh, but we also need, and that's where, you know, that's where you came in, Glenn. I think, you know, we, I knew you were with Nestle, and uh, lo and behold, we got some cocoa. So, truth be told, that was a bait and switch for me. The cocoa was the easy part. <laughs> The sauna was the tough part, yeah. and that was where the passion came in. But hey, it was a good one-two punch, wasn't it? Yeah, right. No, it was very good. Um, but the you know the other piece there, so we needed the cocoa. But more important, really, than the cocoa was a delivery system that actually made sense. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm an attorney, not a you know a operations guy. So a guy named Bill Dossett, who had become a good friend, um, took over that aspect of things, and to this day still. You know, directs the operations of things, yeah. and so all volunteer. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, our volunteers. You can hardly call them volunteers because they do more work than, you know, Hercules. But yeah. Um, yeah. but they believe in what they're doing and mm -hmm. and uh, doing amazing work. Um, so so yeah, so ended up doubling, doubling, doubling. Now it's you know, ten thousand or more people, and mm -hmm. and. And, you know, one of the things we discovered with that is it's not all about the skiing. It's about people getting, getting people outdoors. So yeah, yeah, we exactly. initially had it defined as a skiing event. Right. And later on, we're like, no, if you're walking, if you're snowshoeing, yeah. if you're skiing, we don't care. You know, you're, you're still doing the luminary loaf. And yeah. Still I, welcome. Yeah, that's, the, that's, worth, uh, that's worth talking about because here we are in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A lot of people think we're crazy to live in a city like this. It's cold. And you schedule the luminary to be in the heart of winter and actually at, maybe at the turn, the back turn of winter. Um, it's usually in February, early February. The, the uh, weekend with the first Sunday in February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most people by then have really cocooned their way through uh, many long, dark weeks of winter. And there's something magical about the luminary where we sort of take winter under our wing and, and come out as a community and I think that's the spirit of many uh, cities in the north, where uh, there is this this pent up demand for getting together, getting it out as a as a community, and and you guys touch upon that. Do you, do you feel that at the at the luminary? I, I mean, I think, I think if we feel that with a lot of things that we we do actually, uh, and that maybe hits a, the heart of a lot of openness in general. I think. You know, you could go do your sauna alone in the woods, right? You could go skiing alone in the woods or, um, you know, fat tire biking or whatever. And and I think initially people were like, oh, you know, people aren't going to want to do skiing when there's other people around or sauna together or whatever. But I think what, what people really, what makes it special is that you're doing it together. It's like, why, why do you go to a Twins game when you can watch it on the TV and it's actually, you get a better view? Well, there's something really special about being there all together, all yeah. on the same page, right? Yeah, man. There's something really special about what you just said and who's sitting to my right. Uh, and I want to introduce you guys. This is John Peterson, the founder of the 612 Sounder Society, and a kindred spirit to something that you just recognized, something you just said. John, can you, can you expand on that a little bit as it relates to sauna, as it relates to community versus... A sauna in your backyard. Yeah, hey, I'm gonna interrupt one second. Can, yeah. we, can yeah. we go in the sauna? Let's go in the hot room. Yes, it's well said. I was just yeah. say hey, John, you, you got it yourself uh, 30 seconds before you have to answer that one. Yeah. And so we're getting water here. Yeah. John, John, you called it perfectly. I'm ready to go in now. 
Uh, here, you can stick your cup right in there. We're getting some water. Now, this is an example of what the advantage of being in shape is. Both my two sauna partners here have 0.04 pounds of extra weight on them. I probably have an extra 10 maybe. I don't know. I'd like to think it's that only that. But, uh, you know, when you don't have a, a, too much body fat, your, your rounds are a little quicker. Your heat up is, uh, is faster, right? And, and, and you're ready to go cool down quickly. <laughs> well, you're going to welcome some uh, some water on the rocks, aren't you? Yes, I, uh, yes, I, I was shivering there. Yeah, well, you did good. So, uh, so JP is over here as an as a, as a impeccable Sonnenmeister. He's pulling the coals forward. He's got the glove on. And uh, are we ready for another log in there, John? We are, yeah. Yeah, and do you wanna, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I thought uh, John Munger teed up the ball so well yeah. about community and gathering, uh, whether it's to go skiing, whether it's to go fat tire biking, uh, you mentioned going you know, to a baseball game. Um, what have you noticed, John, as founder of the 612 Sound Society, you know, with, with sauna and, and this community that we've put together here? Uh, yeah, I've, I've noticed that that's where that's where where a lot of the energy where a lot of the energy is that that getting coming together to enjoy the sauna but also to like make it available you know like to come together as a community to operationalize an experience like this that there's there's different layers of where it's satisfying to not just experience something but experience hey we did this together we can do things together you know like i take a lot of uh heart in that and i think other the people that are involved too because we we uh we feel successful together and i know i take that into like my other my other projects where it's like wow i did we did that together and i was really you know like building this on glen this is really complicated for me but like we pulled it off and then it gives me confidence in other things that are you know, kind of daunting. Um, yeah, you can accomplish a lot. Well, what is that African expression? If you uh, if you want to run fast, go alone. If you want to run far, go together. Yeah, sounds That's, right. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> How about you with Sama, John Munger, founder, Lapid Foundation? Uh, you're no stranger to sauna. You embrace sauna. You welcome me to the finish line with my first mobile sauna, and what a, a big thank you on behalf of the Six One Two Sauna Society and John Peterson, founder of the Six One Two Sauna Society, for 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 being open to uh, yeah. allowing this sauna to be here where we are right now uh, at this beautiful trailhead, which we'll talk about in a moment. I, I want to get that down, but can you share a little bit about sauna for you? Um. You know, sauna for me, uh, to be honest, is, has not been like a central part of my life. Um, I enjoy sauna, and it's it's been something that I think is um, kind of culturally part of everything that we do, uh, right? I mean, if you're an outdoors person, if you're a skier, um, you know, if you're from Scandinavian roots, you know, which which many of us aren't, including me, but there's this sense that sauna is, is kind of part of all of that. Um, and, but, I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of go back to part of your question there was, um, you know, one of the, the big things that I, I, when I reflect on my work, when I do it well, it's usually because I say yes. Um, 
you know, and, and so when somebody like John comes and says, geez, we want to be, uh, we've got this great idea, we'll, you know, put a sauna next to the, you know, trailhead, it, you know, I think, I think there's a tendency to think of the reasons why not to do something, and, um, you know, I tend to approach it uh, from from the uh, the opposite you know, point of view, um, let's try and find reasons to, to do this because it's just going to elevate everyone, um, and and the sauna has certainly done that. So I think this is that you're you're having like if I was a psychologist, I think you're having like an opposite reaction to being a lawyer, because as a lawyer, your job is to say no, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, that and and the lawyer skills and, and training have, have uh, helped in a lot of ways, um, in, in strange ways on that, because <laughs> I've, I've, I've thought about that before. I mean, you generally don't say no. What you do is you, you, you tell a client who wants to do something crazy, these are all the reasons why, you know, I think you shouldn't do that, <laughs> you know, or you shouldn't operate just from emotions or whatever, right? Um, but one of the things that's been really useful to me is, you know, people do tend to think of all the reasons they shouldn't do things. And one of them, you know, just as an example that comes up very frequently uh, is, well, we can't do that because of liability. And I've found myself over time, and I, this goes kind of back to my dad, who's a very kind of out-of-the-box, why, why can't we do things person, right? Um, I tend to go, well, wait a second, I actually was an attorney, and I don't see any liability issues here, so I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me about that. And usually they have no concrete thing whatsoever, and so it's, I'm able to kind of steer around, you know, for instance, some park board staff used to have concerns like that, and I would be able to say, uh, you know, time out, I don't, I don't think there's actually mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. really there, right? Yeah, yeah, very well well framed out. We, <clears throat> John, we deal with that a lot with the 612 Sound Society. You know, this. I, I think anybody doing anything the word liability, anything that involves other people yeah. or, or something in the public domain or public world, you know, liability, liability, it really holds us back from so much, so, yeah. so much that we... I can we've... really see what he's saying, too, to have somebody in the room who can say, oh, well, actually, I, I know a lot about liability. Tell me what your concerns are. Let's talk it out, because a lot of times when it comes up, if you don't have that kind of uh, expertise... It's just the conversation stopper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe the way to look at liability is you're, you're out camping and, you know, you're just getting a fire going and it just downpours. That's the liability chatter is the rain that, the, you know, when you're trying to just build something, you know, get, get, get the fire going and, and, and that. So, sauna with you. I got a couple fire, uh, rapid fire questions, John, that I asked all, all sauna talk guests is... Uh, uh, this mobile sauna we're sitting in, it's, it is mobile. If you could bring a mobile sauna anywhere, anywhere in the world, anywhere that you know uh, and enjoy a sauna experience, does a spot come to mind for you? I don't know. I love it right here. I mean, you know, we're <laughs> at the trailhead where my heart is and where I can go skiing and hop in the sauna. I can't think of anything better. And how many steps away are we from your office, from your desk? Uh, you know, I about that's just seven steps away. Yeah. <laughs> As you think about the sauna experience, um, if you could sauna with anybody, uh, dead or alive, uh, past, present, someone famous, someone not famous, um, <clears throat> just to spend a couple hours on the sauna bench, just, you know, just chilling out, relaxing, maybe after exercise, after a nice ski, um, what's a person that comes to mind that you'd like to have a sauna session with? 
Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I don't know, that's that, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I, There's I don't no know. right answer, which yeah, is the good news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know what's funny? What comes to my mind is, it doesn't make any sense. But when I was a kid, I used to I used to read all the baseball books I could, and Lou Gehrig was my hero, right? Mm. And so mm. maybe Lou Gehrig. I nice. Don't know. Yeah. And talk baseball. I just talk like yeah, uh, no, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I, I tend not to idolize. You know who I? You know, no, I know who I would. It would be Jesse Diggins. Mm. Uh, no, it's a no-brainer. She's a you know world-class skier from Minnesota. She's helping us bring the World Cup here. She's the leader of our community. Yeah, Jesse would be awesome. You know, I think dreams can come true. Dreams can come true. She will will be uh, on this property when. Well, she'll be here in May uh, to check out the World Cup course so that she has it in her mind for next year and can visualize it. And she'll be back again exactly, uh, you know, 365 days from now uh, next year at the World Cup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know she's been, <clears throat> you know, you think highly of her. And, and most, actually all of us in Minnesota are just so proud of what, what she's done, uh, you know, as, as a pride of a Minnesotan, you know, pride of Minnesota. And as a pride of skiing, uh, um, there's something that embodies her, her spirit, her, you know, her fortitude, her, her grit, um, that, and we're just so blessed to have, uh, ha have her be, be, a, was she, a, a, can you tell us, tell listeners a little bit about, uh, the World Cup, her involvement, was she a contributor to get this here, and, and give us, shed a little light on that for us, John. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Jesse first came into my worldview. Uh, nine years ago when she was a junior in Minnesota, a uh, junior skier. I think she won state when she was a senior, right? And then the next year um, she came back. We were hosting junior nationals here at the park, and we didn't really have nearly as much infrastructure as we do now, but we managed to put this event together, and uh, Jessie uh, won all the events going away. Uh, she was already kind of skiing internationally at the time and decided to come bless us with her presence. And, and then... Fast forward uh, seven years to the Olympics last year, and, and uh, or fast forward six years, the year before the Olympics, Jesse uh, had done a, a World Cup race in Quebec City, Canada, uh, and after the race was, was really excited about um, how the... the uh, how, how, what the experience was like for her fellow Canadian skiers who got to have, you know, fans from their home country cheering right. on. So she called and said, hey, I heard you might be able to help bring a World Cup to, to Minnesota and to the United States. Just to interject, when you said she called, can you tell us more about that? Who did she call and, and what did that call entail? Was it a phone call into the main switchboard? Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine there have been a few calls. Um, I don't think I was uh, the first, but I think eventually people said, you know, geez, you might want to call John Munger from from the Lopez Foundation. Yeah. Um, maybe he can help make this happen. And, and uh, Did the, you take the, the phone call? Yeah. Do you remember? Well, there was actually a more interesting call that happened a year later. So, so, <laughs> so we worked on it during that year, right? And then... Again, fast forward a year, so she's just won the Olympics, the gold medal, right? And now it's like a week or so later, and my wife and I and Craig Rudd, who I mentioned earlier, yes. are driving up to um, Thunder Bay, Canada, to do a ski race. And we're on the North Shore, and we're driving along, and the phone rings. And I say, you know, I pick up the phone. Hello, this is John. 
Oh, hi, John. This is Jesse Diggins. Do you have a minute? I was like, I turned to Craig and Diane, and I was like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Because she was on speakerphone. Sure. Phone yeah, you took the call That's... in the car. It was on your cell phone. So I always laugh about it. I'm like, oh no, Jesse, I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Can I get back with <laughs> yeah. you? Yeah. So so I pulled over, and we, you know, and we uh, talked to her, and she was asking about the, the World Cup. And, and of course, her winning the World Cup really made it possible for yeah. this all to happen. Um, how, how come and how so, winning the World Cup? Well, I mean, you know, before that, I knew who Jesse Diggins was, but I don't think my neighbor did, my barber didn't, yes. you know, nobody else did. Um, so when you, you know, when she won that, I mean, I, I remember distinctly, within a week or so mm -hmm. after that, I had gone to the barber shop, and my barber said, um, you know, I told him what I did for a living. He said, you need to get that Jesse Diggins on in your ski course. She has real moxie. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the first time that there's been a cross-country skier that has, um, you know, that people in the public know who, who, who they are yes. in, in the United States. And, and bridging, so, bridging a gap, if you will, yeah. from those that are into skiing to those that may be a barber who's casually into the sport or knows you're into it. It's sort of that bridge, that connector piece. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So that phone call, you were on your way up north. Yeah. When so was that again? That was last um, Mar early last March, so just over a sure. year ago. Sure. And um, you know, she's. We've all worked really hard since then to yeah. make this World Cup a reality. It, you know, lots to, happened. Yeah. Anytime you want to step out, we can continue the chat, John. Um, how, how put it in context the world cup here in minneapolis next year um how hard i mean what does that mean uh, uh is as a how difficult is that to get that um to get that assignment is the right word i don't know how, how difficult was it to get and what will it mean for the lapa foundation and the city of minneapolis well i mean it, you know getting it really required going out on a limb. I mean, I convinced the U.S. Ski and Snowboard people that what we needed to do was, you know, get Jesse in a room with as many VIPs in the community as we could find. And, right. and uh, they were a little skeptical of how that was going to work because they, they've been trying to get a World Cup in the U.S. since 2001 was the last one. And wow. It hasn't worked financially. Where, where did that take place? Like That was in Salt Lake City. And, yeah. and the only reason it happened, it was a it was a prelude to the Olympics in, in uh, 2002, right? So, so you fly out there. So, no, we, 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 you know, we talked over the phone, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard guys and I, and, and, but we, when Jesse came home in mid-April, we arranged this breakfast and we invited all the people we could think of and mm -hmm. Jesse lit the room up with yeah. her stories and, and, um, you know, by no means did we solve the puzzle right that day. It was a you know big financial puzzle to solve. Yes. But I, I said, you know what, I'm comfortable enough with this that we're going to take a risk. And I went to my board, some of whom were a little skeptical. Um, and and we you know skeptical went out on the in, in the sense of the ability to pull it off or to get the to get it to get the event or skeptical in what way? Well, I think you know a, a couple ways. I mean, you know, one of our big pieces of our mission involves underserved you know, kids and families and, and populations in North Minneapolis. And, and you know, I've always been very cognizant of that. Is this a new idea, something that's just going to benefit the elite level skier, mm -hmm. or is this mm -hmm. something that's actually going to benefit the community? Mm -hmm. And so they were asking questions like that. In addition to, do we really want to put the finances of the organization at risk for this big of a thing yes. when, it's, when it's about, you know, elite level skiers? Yes. 
as it's turned out, we haven't solved the whole financial puzzle yet. I think we will. Yeah. But, you know, the amount of, of uh, and we should go ahead. Sure, we can go um, outside. Um, yep. but, but the amount of support and inspiration that Jesse and the World Cup brings have more than um, yes. taken care of themselves already. Yeah, yeah well, well said. So finishing up with Sound of Talk, uh, John Munger, founder. Is that the right word? Founder of the Lopit Foundation? I am a, it, one of the founders of the Lopit Foundation, I think. Is that yeah. Right? Oh, thank you, John. And that sums up John right there. He says one of the founders. But, you know, I'm, I can say this. Uh, John's a humble guy, but we would not be sitting here if uh, John did not, quote, quit his day job and immerse himself 100% into the Lopit Foundation. I will include in the show notes some statistics about, and, and also some tentacles, for lack of a better word, of all of the areas that the Lopet Foundation is, is um, deeply involved in within our community. And John touched upon something earlier about, you know, within the mission um, of this nonprofit is to serve the community and also those underserved. Um, so teeing the ball up, my final question for you, John, then is um, tell us about the future. Um, uh, you've created such roots uh, for this organization. Um, you just great. You just gracefully uh, uh, dodged out of of a meeting a little bit before it was adjourned. And I wouldn't say you got busted, but all of your uh, all the people in the meeting passed us by as we were cooling down here. And I think half of them were envious. Uh, do you want to speak about maybe what that meeting was about, or uh, just touch upon what is in the future for the Lafayette Foundation? Well, that that meeting just to you know break the the, the great uh, tension there is is uh, that was a meeting about the the television production for the World Cup next year. So they're here today because this will be about the same light as you'll see for the actual mm. event, right? Mm. Fascinating. Um, so, yeah, were, so were kind, these, of, kind of interesting. Yeah, there must have been eight eight or so people. Uh, any of them from out of town? Are they a local media people, or who, who are those people? Yeah, so the TV production company, there was a couple people from that. There was mm -hmm. a couple people from U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and then and then uh, many of our volunteer crew, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we're, we're here, so... Um, so that was that meeting, and but you know, in terms of where we go from here, um, you know, we're we're at an interesting crossroads. I mean, we have worked really hard to bring this trailhead facility to life, and that's this fourteen thousand square foot facility in the middle of the park with snowmaking and mountain biking and saunas and so forth, all right here, right. kind of a, a real focused <coughs> outdoor place node, um, and that that's been wonderful, and it's taken r really kind of superhuman efforts from all of our staff from the volunteers from a lot of people and and one of the things that's been neat is since we finished it and this is just the last several months um people are still fired up to to do more and mm -hmm. i think you know part mm -hmm. of that is being inspired by things like the world cup but um but it is a time to kind of go from superhuman to maybe a little bit more sustainable is kind yeah. of the word of the day in yeah. the world yeah. right yeah. and um, Slower growth, or, or uh, what's an element of sustainability? Well, maybe slower growth. I mean, I think people don't really believe it when I talk about slower growth because I, I seem to be very good at change yeah. um, <laughs> and, and engendering more of that. But um, but I think I think more that you know we um, we've got to we're, we're allowed to do things maybe a way that you know, that costs a few dollars instead of just doing it with, you know, sheer willpower. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we're starting to prove that this model works around here. We haven't crossed that bridge yet. We have to get through the first year before we're there. But um, 
But that's an exciting thing because, you know, real change in the world is stuff that, that lasts and it's not something that, you know, you, 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 like a kid in North Minneapolis, oh, you go see him one time and, you know, throw toss a ball with him. Well, that's nice, but it's the person who's there with that kid over years and years that he can count on that actually makes a difference in that kid's life. And that's, so being able to cross that um, threshold into maybe something that will still be here in 20 years is, uh, is pretty special.